Our scripture reading today is found in Luke 9:18 through 27. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Once, when Jesus was praying in a private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elisha, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but for whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. A long time ago, in a long ways, well, a mile and a half up the hill, I used to be a mom. And on a year, a long time ago, I had a little son who was three years old, and I had a couple other ones as well, but this three-year-old adored his eight-year-old older brother. He loved him so much that when Halloween came around, I was commissioned by the two of them to make a Halloween costume that went together. So the older one got a Sylvester the Cat costume, and the little one was Tweety Bird. And they went around town, and they did their thing on Halloween, and they, they did a very good job. And my little boy who had Tweety Bird really grew committed to his costume, and he would wear it around the house as casual attire. And as time went on, there was a time when I had had enough of it, and I quietly put it in his closet. And that season went away, and Christmas came upon us. So several weeks later, we had kids in elementary school, and we had invited a bunch of kids from our school to come to our house one day, and we were going to have a live nativity. Now, we had a front yard that faced a busy street in Pasadena, but we were safe, and we built a, um, a stable out of cardboard and duct tape and set it in our front lawn, and then I laid out on our front porch, which was behind the stable, a whole bunch of towels and things that tie on and some bathrobes, and then the star of the show was our one and only Cabbage Patch doll, Nathan Glenn, who was to play the baby Jesus. So on that Friday, and we, we picked rush hour because uh, on our street there was a stop sign just down the road, and so cars had to back up in front of our house. They were our target audience. I got out some hot chocolate and some popcorn for the kids as they were waiting on the porch, and we were, our plan was to rotate everybody through. You'd have a chance to be a shepherd or, a, a, or Joseph or Mary or an angel, and kids would go on and off. Now, I did not do this alone. I had a little bit of sense in my head. So another mom and I worked together to rotate the kids from our front porch to the stable and back again, and at one point I realized I didn't see my three-year-old. 
Well, while all this was going on, I figured he's probably safe because our house was behind us. I didn't see him out here. He's most likely just in the house. So I just kind of gritted my teeth and went on. And at one point, I was arranging a new Joseph next to a new Mary in our very live-action nativity. And I looked up, and I saw him. Tweety Bird had joined the Holy Family. (laughs) And he really did just appear He quietly was holding their hand, gazing upon the infant Jesus. So my son had just only recently learned what a costume was about. It was something that you would dress up in and pretend that you were somebody different. And in his very recent memory, he had tromped around our neighborhood with his brothers, and he had done very well, came home with a whole bag of candy. So this was a good gig. And now, just a few weeks later, here's a whole bunch of kids arriving on his very own front yard, dressed up. This boded well. So being a team player, and no one had told him, you know what, son, from now on we're dressing up and good things will happen. He put that together himself, and he excused himself, went inside, found the costume, and came out suited up, ready to join the team. And he had the best of intentions, and his heart was in the right place, and he kind of had the right idea, but his understanding was not complete. And so... In today's, in today's text, we see Peter act with similar purpose, overcome with emotion and against a background of, he sure looks like the anointed one to me. Peter declared Jesus to be the Messiah. And while his answer is technically correct, his understanding was incomplete. So let's back up and look at what Luke has to say until this moment and see what brought Peter to this confession. In the third chapter of Luke, Jesus just emerges from the Jordan River, having having been baptized by John. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's been affirmed publicly by God his Father. Everybody heard this voice. The dove was, was over his head. The whole of God was right there celebrating this moment. Jesus was publicly loved by his Father. And then the Spirit hard for us to understand, led Jesus into the wilderness for some really close one-on-one time with the Father and too close for comfort time with, with Satan. And this was time just before Jesus would step out and unveil this new kingdom plan that God had had waiting. And so the Messiah entered first century Israel unrecognized. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Jesus had spread all over the countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and one Sabbath, he stood up to read the Scripture. He chose the prophet Isaiah, and these are the words he said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said, because the Lord has anointed me. He read about preaching good news to the poor, liberating the oppressed, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, and he finished up and he said, Today, rolling up the scroll and putting away. This scripture has been fulfilled just as you heard it. Luke is telling us, pay attention to what he says. He can back up his his audacious claims. Those in attendance that day were blown away. They were all behind Jesus. Joseph's son was amazing. Their approval, though, quickly evaporated as Jesus claimed to them that no prophet was welcome in his hometown. They turned quickly and they ran him out of town, hoping to run him over a cliff. But it wasn't his time. The Bible says he passed through the crowd and he went on his way. He came to Capernaum and he found a man with a demon in him and he silenced the demon. People were shaken. The demon came out. What kind of word is this, they said to each other. He commands unclean spirits with authority and power and they leave. 
He has power over unseen powers, says Luke. He, he liberates the oppressed. Still, people brought their people to Jesus. They came to Jesus bringing their loved ones who were afflicted with all kinds of diseases and evil spirits. Jesus now drew a crowd. On a lake shore one day, they pressed in from every side, and he kept backing up, but it was a lake shore, and he was just about ready to step into the water, looking around. It's an amphitheater. He found two little rowboats right there on the shore. Some fishermen were cleaning up after a night out on the, on the lake, and Jesus stepped back into one, and he asked the fishermen, can you just row out a little bit? The fishermen did. And Jesus, in this amphitheater, out on a floating podium, sat there, and he addressed the crowds. And Luke says when he was done teaching, he told them, and they, the crowds went away, and Jesus now turned his attention to the fishermen. And he said, Simon Peter, we're not going that way. Row out a little farther, and then I want you to cast your net over the side. Think about what Peter has heard that day and what he has watched. And also, this is a sleep-deprived man. It's his nighttime right now. Peter did actually speak up, and he says, Master, we've worked hard all day, and we've caught nothing. But then Peter gave it new consideration. Before, because you say so, he said, I'll drop the nets. And this time in, in Jesus' presence, his catch was so massive that he just he, he couldn't do it himself. He motioned or called or screamed to his friends on shore, and they joined him with a second boat and all the nets and three more fishermen. And between the two boats and the four men, they kept dropping their nets and picking up load after load of fish until Luke says their boat started to sink under the weight of the fish. At that, at that point, Peter looked over the fish, past the fish, and he saw instead the divinity that was Jesus Christ. And he didn't shout out, thank you, what an amazing night. No, he said, Lord, go away. I can't be with you. I'm a sinner. And he was right. Jesus left the shore that day with his new disciples, and he started to show them layer upon layer upon layer who he really was. Listen to this. He was healer. I do want you to be clean, he said, reaching out and touching an unclean man who had, a, who had a skin disease. Jesus had the power to forgive. Which is easier, he asked, in front of people who wanted to know, to say that your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. Jesus chose unlikely companions. Follow me, he said to Levi, a tax collector. I didn't come to call righteous people. I came to call sinners. And I want them to change their hearts and lives. Jesus got to the heart of the matter right away. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he said, when someone questioned him. Now huge crowds followed him. They came to hear him and to be healed. Power was going out from him, and he was healing everyone who came his way. He also taught them. Happy are you who are poor, he said. You who hunger, you who weep. He turned things right side up. Love your enemies, he said. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Get the log out of your eye. And he challenged them. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Yet you don't do what I say. His words held authority. One day he, sealed, he healed the servant of a centurion. And Jesus marveled. He marveled and he said, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Jesus interrupted a funeral procession. I say to you, he said to the young man in the coffin, get up. He dominated sickness and death. Still, some people weren't sure, and wait till you hear who they were. Are you the one who is coming, or should we look for someone else? Asked the disciples of John the Baptist. 
Jesus responded, right then and there, he healed people of their diseases and their evil spirits, and he restored sight right in front of these disciples who had asked. And then he said, go back and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind see, the crippled walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, good news is preached to the poor. And everyone who heard this saw, acknowledged God's justice. There were Pharisees and legal experts there too. Luke says they rejected God's will for themselves. One Pharisee decided to see for himself. He was a little bit open, and he had a dinner party and invited Jesus and some others. Uninvited was a woman who, who had a lot to forgive. And she came, and to show her gratitude to Jesus, she was crying, and she had a very expensive jar of perfume, which she broke and anointed Jesus' feet with her. Jesus didn't say, go away, you're embarrassing me. Instead, he said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you, daughter. Go in peace. Maybe we, like his dinner guests, would say, who is this person who even forgives sin? And then in a boat again, on a stormy sea this time, he was awakened by his frantic disciples. Master, master, we're drowning, they cried. Where is your faith? Jesus answered. And he stilled the storm, calming the wind and the waves. And while the weather was now quiet, something had stirred and was a stormy storm inside the disciples' hearts. Who is this? They asked each other. They were flabbergasted. Jesus was talking to a man after he had taken demons out of him, and he said, Return home and tell everyone what God has done for you. Nothing outpowered Jesus. And once, as he was on his way to heal a little girl who was sick, Jesus was stopped. And he said to people, Who touched me? Power has gone out from me. And his disciples wanted to rush him onto his way. And they said, come on, Lord. Anybody could have touched you. Look around. And Jesus said, no, somebody touched me. I felt power go out of me. And a woman had to own up. And after 12 years of being sick, she fell to his feet. But this time, in just gratitude, self-conscious gratitude. She was being pointed out, but she was just grateful. And Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So now he was late to the little girl who was sick. She was no longer sick. She had died. When he got there, Jesus said, stop wailing. Only he probably said it gentler than that. Stop wailing. The girl's not dead. She's asleep. They laughed. She was dead. My child, get up, he said, taking her hand. And she sat up, and her spirit returned to her. And then it said that once that she stood up, Jesus extinguished death. And now it was the disciples' turn. They had watched. They had listened. They had traveled with him. They had tried to take it all in. And now he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority for them to drive out demons and for them to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Herod noticed this. He was a little disturbed. He said, I beheaded John, so who then is this? And at some point, the 12 disciples returned, and they had many things to report to Jesus. They told him the things they had done, the things they had said, the things that had happened, and the crowds found them again as well. Jesus, knowing what they had just done, experiencing his his power firsthand, being the ones through whom the Holy Spirit was working, said to his disciples, give the crowd something to eat. Well, this was a pop quiz. They weren't ready. They said, well, we we only have two fish and, and five loaves. And Jesus took the loaves and fish. And here was a picture of something that was to come. He lifted them up to his father. He broke them and gave thanks. 
And you know the rest of the story. He fed everyone in the crowd, and then he even had a surplus of 12 baskets of food. That brings us to the conversation today, in today's text. Luke 9:20. Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him. He asked to them, who do all the crowds say that I am? His disciples had lots of answers. John the Baptist, some of them said. Oh, no, or Elijah. Or some even say that you're a prophet of long ago who's come back to life now. And Jesus pressed it further. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are God's Messiah. You are the Christ sent from God. Which was, which was the right answer. I mean, technically, Peter was right. When he says the Christ and the Messiah... But Peter, just like every other disciple that was with him that day, had no understanding of what it would mean for Jesus to be the Christ and to be the Messiah. If you were here last week, you remember we talked about kind of these messianic expectations that people had been waiting for years upon years for this promised Messiah to come. And the longer they had waited for the Messiah, the, the more theories that were out there, the more ideas were out there of who this Messiah would be, how they would come into this world, how they would reign, what their work would be. And so you have to understand, in everything we just learned about what was happening in the book of Luke, this would be the first time that Jesus would share with his disciples about what it would mean for him to be the Messiah. This is the first time that he is gathering his followers and he's giving them a definition. He's giving them the details of his mission. And what he shares with them, we know now. So when we hear things like death and resurrection, but for them on those ears, it would have been radically different than any theory that was out there. In verse 21, we see this job description of Messiah he strictly warns them first. He says, don't go public with this. This is just for you right now. And he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Jesus tells them the job description of Messiah and it has four parts. First part, suffer many things. Second, Rejection from all the religious powers and authorities. Third, be killed. Fourth, be raised from the dead. In our shared faith, in our statement, Article 5, it says that we believe that Jesus Christ as our representative and substitute shed his blood on the cross as the all-perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. So what Jesus claims in Luke 9 later will be lived throughout the Gospels, and it's what we believe today. We believe that the four-part job description that Jesus laid out to his disciples that day happened, and it's true, and it's relevant to life. Let's look at these four parts briefly. One, says the Son of Man, speaking of the Messiah, must suffer many things. Just think about the suffering that Jesus endured, part of him coming to make all things right, to redeem the world, to offer the new covenant, the new way of living, to be faithful to the prophecies. First part is to suffer many things, remembering that he's fully man. We learned that last week. Just think about his suffering for a moment. Think about the emotional suffering. Here he is later 
with this same group of people that he's told previously what's going to happen to him. They already know and they've known for a long time the suffering, the rejection, the death. And he's with them. And the night before he's to start all of this, he says, all I need you to do as my friends and my followers is stay awake with me. Just be there with me. And they fell asleep on him. Jesus, as someone who is fully man, experiences things like loneliness and rejection and emotional suffering. He experienced that in the garden. And then the physical suffering. We're familiar with the cross, but the road to the cross was brutal and it was marked by the suffering of many things. When we know that they placed a crown of thorns on him. And we live in a city where we have roses and we think of little thorns. These were not small thorns. This was a, this was a torture device. And they rammed it onto his head, piercing the skin, penetrating his skull. Deep suffering, deep pain. And while that pressure is on his head, they had another torture device called a cat of nine tails, a long whip with nine different pieces where you would tie pieces of bone or stone, or glass. And they would take this whip against his bare back, and they would throw all of those pieces of stone, glass, and rock, those sharp things, into his back where it would stick, and then they would rip it out. And it was common knowledge and kind of the belief that if someone would get 40 of those lashes, that they would die simply from just that. The Son of Man must suffer many things. They didn't want him to die just with that, so they held back a lash, And he was whipped 39 times. And then with his body open, exposed, we know now with this crown and and losing blood and the physical pain that he's in, he's now got to carry his cross. He's got to carry the very device which he will die upon. And he's got to parade it through the streets. And as he's walking through the streets with his open body and his suffering body, people are yelling at him and spitting on him and making fun of him. The Son of Man must suffer many things. The first item of the job description is suffering. The second item is rejection. And specifically in Luke 9, we read about the rejection that Jesus faced from all the religious powers and authorities. All the people who on this earth at that time were supposed to be the ones who understood how to connect with God, how to live for God. These were the people who rejected Him. These were the people who had so walked away from an understanding of what real life was that they were the people who plotted his death and rejected every teaching he had. They were people who had jobs like me, unable to see. But we know, we know throughout the scriptures that that wasn't just the only rejection he faced. When he's carrying that cross, he's being rejected by a public that a week before, a week before, this was the same public that was laying down palm fawns for him. And they were celebrating him, that the king is here. And the same crowd that was revering him a week before was the crowd that was despising him now. Rejection. And we know that ultimately the suffering and rejection leads to the third part of his job as Messiah to his death. And we live at a time where we wear crosses on shirts and around our necks, and we have this really big one that's a part of our church, and 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 but and it's a symbol and a sign of this death. But it, we got to remember, it was a torture device. It wasn't a pretty way to die. You didn't just you didn't just get some nails in your body and and you died. It was a long, torturous, awful death. 
They would put these nails through his wrists and through his legs, and the way you died in crucifixion was through suffocation. And, and your strength would get weaker and weaker, and your body would sag, and you'd have to pull up your body weight on these nails to catch a breath and then come back down. In fact, you were lucky in crucifixion if they just come by and break your legs and you would die quicker. But Jesus hung on that cross for a long time, pulling his weight up over and over again, taking a breath, looking at the crowd of people who are mocking him, who are making fun of him, who are telling him, save yourself if you're really this Messiah, show us some power. But death isn't the final part of this job description. It didn't end at death. It didn't end with suffering. It didn't end with rejection. The final word in this Messiah mission, this Messiah job description, was one more really, really important part. And Jesus says it himself at the end. He says, oh yeah, and on the third day, be raised to life. Friends, we believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and his victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. On the third day, the Messiah will be raised to life. But the disciples had not seen that before. Resurrection and raised to dead from the dead were not part of their everyday vocabulary. They heard it differently than we did. And soon they were going to watch Jesus step into his own prediction. He allowed himself to suffer just as he had said at the hands of unjust men, just as he had said. Even those who claimed to love him rejected him, just as he had said. Peter stayed as close to Jesus as he could bear but he couldn't bear it. And just before Christ died, Peter bailed on him, denying him and failing him utterly. Peter too was suffering. Peter too was rejected. But this was at his own doing. And Jesus was crucified between two criminals, the only person to ever live a sinful, a sinless life here on this earth, now shouldered the weight of the sin of the entire world, yours and mine, and he paid for it with his own life. But God raised him from the dead, there are those words, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to, hold, to keep its hold on him. And the end of the story, as you know, was that on the third day, the first day of the week, some women went out to the tomb looking for Jesus. They were not expecting to find an alive Jesus, and they didn't. They took spices to, that they had prepared for him to take care of his body, to continue showing their love and their devotion for him. And when they got there to their horror or confusion, the stone had been rolled away, and the Bible says that they went into the tomb still looking for Jesus' body. What would that be like? Where is it? And they were upset, and as they walked out of the tomb, they were greeted by two men. And the Bible says their, their um, clothes were gleaming like lightning. That was a hint. And they said, why are you looking for the dead? Why are you looking for the living where the dead people are? And, and they were trying to think, well, because he's dead. And then the angel said to them, Remember Jesus' words. And they reminded them of the very words that Jesus had just shared about his prediction that he was going to suffer, he was going to be rejected, he was going to die, but on the third day he was going to rise from the dead. He had never said anything to them before that wasn't true. And they hoped against hope this would be true. They said, the angels told them, go and tell your friends. And they did, and the women thought, they are never going to believe this. And they were right. 
And now, on the other end of this, after the, after the resurrection, Peter and the other apostles find themselves a few weeks later in Jerusalem again, this time to celebrate Pentecost. And now Peter finds words like I just read to you. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Those words came out of a restored and a renewed Peter. He preached to throngs who had crowded into Jerusalem for the Pentecost celebration. An old tradition now was being infused with brand new meaning, with brand new life. And Peter who had once privately confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, now boldly proclaimed it to a crowd, a big, messy, multi-ethnic, multilingual crowd who had converged upon the streets of the city, preaching the same words as Jesus had, empowered by the same Holy Spirit, Peter drove home the significance of the Messiah's death and resurrection. Humans weren't made to die. That's why it hurts. God created us in his own image to live in a love relationship with him forever. Death separates. Life unifies and it brings us back together. Men and women have longed for resurrection ever since the second page of the Bible when Adam and Eve broke the world, when they disobeyed God and death entered. Men and women have been longing for resurrection ever since our father's father's father, Abraham, obeyed, obeyed God and was willing to offer his son, if God asked him to, as a sacrifice. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he fulfilled his purpose in coming to the earth. Peter was to write himself in a letter later on, Jesus Christ died for our sin once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Forgiveness of sins is ours for the taking, and it's all-inclusive. In Hebrews it says, the risen king is able to completely save those who come to God through him. Jesus' resurrection lets us know the hope to which he has called us and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power you will recognize. That power is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Have you made this choice to accept this gift? Will you follow him no matter where it takes you? Will you follow him if it includes these four parts of being a disciple? Jesus wants you now, and he doesn't care in what state that is. You don't have to fully understand what it means for him to be the Messiah. But do take a look at him. Jesus might not be who you expect. Following him isn't fancy, and it doesn't make you pretty. It doesn't make you famous. It doesn't give you a leg up in your career, and it won't fill your bank account. But he does much more than that. Jesus addresses the need that's at the very core of our being. That nagging, persistent, middle-of-the-night question, who am I, is answered in who he is. So this good news was preached by a different kind of Peter now. Peter who had once stepped out of the boat that day and didn't return to home as usual. Peter, who followed Jesus and whose life was never the same again. Peter, whose first-hand experience with a risen, resurrected Christ transformed him forever. Peter, who impacted the whole world for Jesus. Jesus, who speaks with authority. Jesus, whose actions speak even louder than his words. Jesus, undaunted by demons, undeterred by sickness, unstoppable by death. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. Peter continued, let all Israel be assured of this. He said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And Luke writes as he continues this story in Acts that when people heard this, they had a response. They were cut to the heart. 
Brothers, what shall we do? They cried to the, the apostles. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, said Peter, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for us and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your God will call. So who do you say that Jesus is? The answer to this question will decide the rest of your life here and forever. The work of Jesus Christ demands a response. I think we see a response in in Acts. Carol's just referenced in Acts 2. Peter preaches this message, and, and it says that people were cut to the heart. And as they were moved in their spirit, as, as they knew, maybe, maybe as some of you are being moved in this moment, the question is, what do you do with this? And the answer there was to repent and to be baptized, to turn to God, and then turn to the world and tell them who God is in your life. Even in Luke 9, Jesus doesn't just talk about his own job description without talking about who will follow him. Listen to the response that Jesus says to us as he said to his disciples, starting in verse 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man is going to be ashamed of them. And when he comes into his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels, truly I tell you, Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Jesus gives us a response. Uh, The book of Acts gives us a response. And throughout the scriptures, we see a response. So what's our response? One, some of us need to repent and to be baptized. Those are really big church words. But when we hear about the work of Jesus Christ, when we understand that that suffering, that rejection, the death, and the resurrection was so that we can live free, so that we don't have to live and be defined by things like suffering, death, and and rejection. The response from us needs to be to turn to God and to accept this work of Jesus as the work for our own lives. That's what repenting means. And then when it says baptizing, it means that we, we don't just turn to God and have a private conversation with him and say, I believe all that to be true and, and thank you, but now we're to turn to the world, to turn to the public, and to declare to them that we are gods, we are part of him, and that this gift of Jesus Christ, it, it defines my life. Some of you this morning need to repent and to be baptized, to turn to God, to turn to the world, and to say that this truth, this truth that Jesus was killed and raised from the dead is the truth that defines everything I'm about. Some of us need to start that journey this morning. And yet so many of us have said, well, well we've done that. I mean, we're at church and we, we're, we give and we serve and, and we've repented and we've been baptized and we've been identified as someone who follows Jesus and that we've got to come back to the Scriptures. And when we come back to the Scriptures and read what Jesus says about who disciples are and what discipleship looks like, it should move us because even all of us in this room, no matter how long we've been following God or how spiritual we think we are, the words of Jesus are convicting as they always are. I mean, Jesus says, as essence, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, then make your life look like mine. He says, deny yourself, 
Take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, if you want to be a disciple, you take on the same job description that I took on. Deny yourself, take up your own cross. So guess what? If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, get ready because you're going to start entering a life where words like suffering and rejection and death, oh, but the good news, resurrection, these are the words that define the life of a disciple. Right, But this goes counter to the way we think about the spiritual life. This goes counter to the way that spirituality is talked about in our culture because somehow we get this belief that if we really follow God, that the days of suffering and rejection, those are in our past and, and, and we've been redeemed and all of that is true and there's a way of living that is good. But friends, Jesus gave it all. And he says, if you want to follow me, you've got to give it all. You get ready for moments and seasons of your life of suffering. Get ready for moments and seasons of life marked by rejection. Get ready for moments and seasons of your life that are marked by death. But also be ready for moments and seasons of your life marked by resurrection. Remember, in Jesus' own job description, death and suffering and resurrection aren't the final word. The final word is resurrection. So even when we go through these seasons of, of rejection and suffering and death, we know that that's not it. We know that there's resurrection. In fact, I think this is the life cycle. I think in any given time, even in the matter of a day, we move throughout these four phases. Right? We're in a season of suffering. We're in a season of suffering. Sometimes in the the same day, we can experience suffering at work to come home to resurrection with our family. Hopefully it's not reversed for you. Right? This is just part of being human. Suffering and rejection and death, but those don't have the final word, resurrection. See, Jesus is saying, if you want to be my follower, take on my life. And and here's this, I need everything from you. I want it all. Give it all. Don't hold back. That's what he's saying when he continues. He goes, some of you, you're going to try to save your life. That's going to be the way to lose it. Lose your life for me. Give me everything and then you'll really live. Some of you, some of you, you're going to try to gain the whole world. And in doing that, you're going to deny your very self. Don't do that. I want everything. Some of you are going to kind of follow me. And there's going to be moments where you're going to be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of me. I want everything. If you're ashamed of me, at the end, I'm going to be a little ashamed of you. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Follow me. Make your life look like mine. Give me everything. I want it all. Jesus gave it all, and he wants it all from us. He says something at the end that kind of feels like it doesn't fit, where he says, truly I tell you, some who are standing here today aren't going to taste death before they experience the kingdom. It fits completely because in essence what Jesus is saying is some of you, some of you, not all of you, some of you are going to so understand this way of living. Some of you are going to understand what it means to deny yourself take up your cross. Some of you are going to lose your life for me. Some of you are not going to be ashamed of me. Some of you are going to understand what life is really about, that you aren't going to have to die for the kingdom of God to be real in your life. This is the trap of discipleship. Some of us, we love being saved by Jesus. We love salvation because salvation lets us know that when our life is over, We keep going with God, and it's good news, and it's powerful. 
If we live that way and that way only, we're not going to taste or experience the kingdom of God in this life. Jesus is saying this, I have a mission for your life now. It's not just about salvation, it's about you becoming a disciple. And if you want to follow me, make your life look like mine. Be serious about it. Give me everything. And when you live that way, some of you are going to get it. And you're going to experience this good way of living and it's beyond anything you could have ever imagined. And that seems to be the contradiction of the spiritual life. Because you can experience the kingdom of God and be in a moment of suffering. You can experience the kingdom of God and be in a season of rejection. Friends, tonight and tomorrow is a big day for Matt and Grace Huang. Huge. And I I know these people. These are serious disciples. These are radical followers of Jesus Christ. These are people who said to God, I'm giving you everything. And God sent them to a foreign land. And they've been two years in prison. You can be living the kingdom of God and be going through rejection. You can be living the kingdom of God and be going through suffering. You can be living the kingdom of God and experience death. But part of living the kingdom of God is those don't get the final word. It's all about resurrection. And Jesus says, some of you are going to get it. You're going to get it so well, you're going to understand the kingdom right here and right now. I know this shows up in a lot of my sermons because I'm passionate about it. Because I, I feel like somewhere when I was raised in the faith, I was told over and over again, it's just about heaven. And friends, it's not. Heaven and the kingdom are something we experience right here and right now, and it extends into eternity. If if Jesus had different words where he said, you want to follow me, then study the Bible, hang out with just people who who believe the same things as you do, and then just die. He didn't say that. He said, I I got a job for you. Take on my life. Live like me. Make it all about me. Give me everything and you will understand what real living is. I believe this morning, there's some of us this morning that need to repent and to be baptized. We need to turn to God and turn to this world and say, I'm about Jesus. I accept the work of Jesus. But I think there's a lot of us also who need to be reminded that the spiritual life isn't one that's easy. And that when we leave this place today, we leave carrying a cross, denying ourselves, doing our best to give it all to Jesus this next week, not being ashamed of our identity as a Christian, being able to go and to be the beauty and goodness and blessing in this world. Join me in prayer. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you, God, that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross And as he shed his blood, he became the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and his victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for our salvation. And this morning, God, some of us are declaring that salvation to you anew. Some of us for the first time. Some of us, the truth is, we just haven't picked up our cross in a while. And we've gotten a mixed message in our mind thinking that discipleship is easy and that representing you, we don't have to really be all in all the time. I pray for myself and each person in this room that we leave this place not just grateful for what Jesus did on that cross and grateful for the resurrection but that we would take it further and that we would leave denying ourselves, taking up our own cross, following you, 
giving you everything in this life, not being ashamed and living in such a way that we experience the kingdom of God right here and right now. Help us live that and believe that. In the name of Christ, amen.